Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody else. And happy Sabbath. Or should I say happy salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ's day? I think that's a little better, kind of theologically robust to remind us what it means, right? Well, that was the best children's story I've ever heard. I see no reason to even have a sermon, but we're here, so we may as well launch right into it. I want to talk to you about what I'm going to refer to as the great forgetting, but I'm going to change the title of the message at the end because the great forgetting is going to give way to something far more glorious. Now, let's begin by acknowledging that Agatha Christie is, without question, one of the best-selling authors of all time. I'll just hold this. There she is. Don't you love that hair? There she is, Agatha Christie. Um, if the sides don't move, I'll just kind of hold this up, and you can move it for me if for some reason it doesn't work. Is that cool? It's on. It's green. It is flashing, whatever that means. So Agatha Christie is one of the best-selling authors of all time. She specialized, of course, in crime novels, right? And she has come back in to our consciousness recently because of the movie that is uh, taking theaters by storm worldwide right now, uh, Death on the Nile, one of her stories. She was really good at formulating stories that had plot lines where you had to figure out who it was among the many possible options in the story might have committed the crime. But then in 1926, her own life became a mystery to be solved because that year, Agatha Christie went missing. Her car was found and she was found 11 days later 320 kilometers from her car. She was found by her husband, Archie, who testified upon finding her that she has suffered from the most complete loss of memory, and I do not think that she knows who she is. And in fact, she didn't know who she was. She does not know me, and she does not know where she is. She had suffered from amnesia. Now, we know from the medical science that has come down to us through the ages that amnesia can happen, and mostly happens, by head injuries, by a physical injury. But Agatha had suffered no physical injury. But she had suffered a moral injury. Archie, who found her, she had discovered 11 days previous, was having an affair. And in a subconscious effort to block out the reality of her situation, which was more than she could bear, she erased her own identity. She just simply forgot who she was for 11 days and went wandering off from her car. Now, this was in 1926. At the same time, there was a lot of study taking place with the emergence of psychotherapy. So, of course, there was Sigmund Freud, who 
was the father of psychoanalysis. And then there was a contemporary of what, what I'm going to suggest to you is that Agatha is not alone in her experience, that we've all forgotten who we really are. And I'm not, I'm not saying this to be cute. I'm not exaggerating for effect. I'm suggesting to you a concrete reality that I'm going to endeavor to demonstrate, and I think you'll track with me, that in fact, we all have forgotten who we really are, and that Jesus came into the world specifically to restore the memory of our forgotten identity. Now, during the time that Agatha Christie was wandering around, forgetting who she was due to the moral trauma of a serious violation of relational integrity, one of Sigmund Freud's contemporaries, and in fact, a student of psychoanalysis himself, a man by the name of Pierre Genet, was embarking upon a study that involved interviewing or doing psychoanalysis on hundreds, literally hundreds of trauma victims. By the way, that wasn't difficult to do because, in fact, as we're about to discover, I'm going to suggest to you that all of us as human beings, to one degree or another, are trauma victims. And what's happening in our experience is precisely what happened to a greater or lesser degree, what happened in Agatha Christie's experience. So Pierre Genet, in his effort to understand the human mind and what's happening to people when they undergo not physical trauma necessarily, but moral trauma, the trauma of violation of whatever sort, Pierre Genet made a discovery. Track with me. Traumas produce their disintegrating effects in proportion to their intensity, duration, and repetition. So when a person experiences something that is traumatizing, depending on whether that trauma is repetitive or a one-off experience, and depending on how intense the trauma is, you might imagine, for example, on one end of the spectrum, the trauma of a father looking into a little boy's eyes and saying, you are nothing and you'll never amount to anything and I wish you were never born. That's pretty traumatizing. And on the other end of the spectrum, being beaten or sexually molested as a child. But wherever the trauma occurs on the spectrum, according to Pierre Genet, Trauma, trauma produces a disintegrating effect. You hear in the word what's happening, disintegration. We're put together in an integrated form. Our thoughts and our feelings are coherent. Disintegration occurs when we lose track of the train of our personal narrative by means of trauma. And what Genet discovered was that there's a difference between traumatic memory and narrative memory. This is just a guy with a notepad and a pen interviewing trauma victims and taking notes, making discoveries, recording those discoveries, comparing them with Sigmund Freud's discoveries, and they're just trying to understand human psychology. They're just trying to figure out what's going on in the human mind. Now, 
when he uses the terminology narrative memory, what he means is, and this is very fascinating, I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself in this way or not, but you are a narrative creature. You are composed of an unfolding story. Psychologically and emotionally, your humanity is optimized to the degree that you can discern yourself in time, on the landscape of reality, in relationships, unfolding in a narrative, a story. So there's coherence. You can make sense of your life. Well, this happened, and that was cool, and then this happened, and then this, and wow, look, now I'm married and I have a baby. There's a process, there's a story that unfolds. When trauma comes upon a human mind, a human psyche, the traumatic memories override the narrative memories and a break occurs in the narrative so that moral traumas or what I'm going to refer to as relational violations override coherence. And suddenly your life doesn't make sense. You might even say to yourself in your mind or to somebody else, my life just doesn't make sense. I don't know what to do with myself. And so that lack of coherence, according to Genet, produces an effect. The person becomes unable to integrate their traumatic memories, and they know that their life should be different, but unable to integrate their trauma memories, they seem to lose their capacity to assimilate new experiences as well. So do you see what's happening here? Somebody offers you or me an opportunity in life, but I can't envision myself succeeding with that opportunity because my trauma subconsciously makes me believe that I'm incapable and that the narrative train or plot line of my life has been broken. It is as if their personality has definitely stopped at a certain point. We call this now, and this language was developed later, arrested development. We all know and we've either been or met an adult male who is in fact a moral, a moral child. So you have a woman that you meet, she's 35 years old, but she operates at a maturity level of an eight-year-old because it was at that eight-year-old level, that 10-year-old level, that the trauma occurred that caused her or him to turn inward and to shut down and to feel a sense, even though if they can't explain it, a sense of incoherence. My life doesn't make sense. It was making sense when my mommy loved me, it was making sense when my daddy was affirming me. My life stopped making sense when my daddy abused me. And the narrative is broken. Not only does the person experience a kind of stopping of their personality development, it says they can't, he says that they can't enlarge anymore by the addition or assimilation of new elements. A person becomes afraid to try new things, to branch out, to experiment with the beautiful things of life for, fair, for, for fear of failure, for, for fear of additional pain. So this is phenomenal, you guys. Because here's a guy in the late 1800s, early 1900s, who just by observation 
and asking questions and doing interviews and taking notes is saying, wow, this is amazing what happens to a person when they go, undergo trauma of some kind. So what I'm suggesting to you, what Janae is suggesting, is that relational violations cause me to lose track of who I am in relation to others. In fact, I am engineered to always be looking out of myself to the best interest of others. But when I'm traumatized, I turn inward in an act of self-protection, and I become self-centered in my emotions. So I can't feel what you're going through because all I can feel is what I'm going through. And this was an experience that Agatha Christie had. I become disoriented on the landscape of social relations. I just don't know how to maturely relate to anybody. I have a short fuse. Somebody cuts me off on the, on the highway and I can't process what just happened to me and so anger comes up in my heart which is traceable, if I understood my situation, to earlier violations that I don't understand are still with me in adulthood. In the book, The Body Keeps the Score, which I brought to you two years ago when I was here, I'm going to bring to you again the work of Dr. Bessel, Bessel van der Kolk, because he, building on the work of Genet and Freud, picked up on these ideas and did his own work in psychoanalysis and says that traumatized people, check this out, simultaneously remember too little and too much. I don't know if you've experienced this. Probably the moment I articulate some of these things this morning, you will probably be feeling like, wow, nobody's ever said it like that, but now that I think about it, that's been my experience. To remember too much is to have the trauma and the pain magnified in my consciousness so that it, it becomes a lens through which I interpret what people are doing to me. So a guy, for example, has a girlfriend and he might be super possessive and jealous. But that possessiveness and that jealousy he's projecting on her, she could be perfectly innocent. She's looking at the potato chips in the grocery store, or the crisps, as you call them, and he thinks she's looking at the guy that just walked by. So he's interpreting the phenomenon around him, the social phenomenon around him, through the lens of his own trauma. Are you tracking with me so far? Okay, so what does it mean to remember too little? Well, to remember too much is to remember, to have the traumas magnified, to remember too little is to literally forget that I am a creature, I am a being, I am a person who is best optimized in life by loving others and receiving their love. I lose sight of that and I'm in survival mode. I'm just processing reality the only way I know how because my pain is overriding the coherence of a good story. Vanderkolk goes on and says, ordinary memory is essentially social. That is to say that if the human mind is operating the way it's supposed to operate, I perceive myself in relation to others. 
My, my memories are social. I see you. I, I feel you. I'm, I hear you. This is called empathy. But empathy begins to shut down when all I can feel is my own hurt. So then he says that this, this ordinary memory is essentially a story that we tell for a purpose. So I see myself as an unfolding narrative. But there's nothing social, he says, about traumatic memory. It's not social. It's not a story. It doesn't make sense. The coherence of my life just starts to break down at a subconscious level. And so I don't know what to do with myself. And I begin to make choices that compensate for the lack of coherence. Ordinary memory, he says, again, is, is social. It's a story. It's important for you and I to understand, as we're about to get into the biblical perspective on this, that your life is essentially a story. And the story that your life is gives coherence and meaning and significance to your life. If the problem with post-traumatic stress disorder is dissociation, well then, Vanderkolk says the goal of treatment would be association. The problem with trauma is it, it separates me from me and thereby separates me from you. I don't have integrity and coherence within myself, so I can't see you the way you really are. I have to interpret your actions through the lens of my trauma, my pain, my suffering. And the only way forward is to be reintegrated into a coherent and beautiful story, integrating the cut-off elements of the trauma into an ongoing narrative of life so that the brain can recognize, and this is crucial, that that, that trauma, that bad experience at 8 years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, 16 years old, 22 years old, that that was then. But this is now. And now does not have to be defined by then. We say in the more contemporary vernacular, I can move on. I can get past it. Well, I can't get past it unless I know that there's a way to get past it. You have to be able, in other words, to make sense of your life in the form of a coherent story that is defined by relational integrity. In other words, at some point in your traumatized existence, you must enter into relationships in which you feel loved, in which the person with whom you have a relationship is trustworthy and does not violate you so that you can reclimatize psychologically to a state of being in which you can trust again. You can open up again. You can empathize again. You can begin to experience life the way it was meant to be experienced. And this is a phenomenal reality that Scripture teaches and modern psychology is discovering, even though they don't know that they're discovering the biblical narrative. And that is that the only story that makes sense to the human psyche is love. Anything other than love or relationships that are trustworthy, relational integrity, anything other than love injures us. It injures the fine machinery of our minds and our emotions. And again, we lose track of who we are. 
when the narrative of love is broken in our lives, suffering occurs. And that suffering occurs in the form of mental emotional trauma. Brene Brown is doing a lot of work in this regard, and she is a researcher on an extraordinary level. She does a lot of reading, apparently, because she says, if you ask me, as a researcher, if you ask me the one thing that I know for sure, after 200,000 pieces of data, I know that in the absence of love and belonging, there is always suffering. That I know for sure. Now, this is a scientist. This is a, this is a researcher speaking. You know, very tentative the way they speak. I don't know if that's really, really true. I'm still studying it. I'm looking into it. But Brene is saying, okay, I don't know a lot. There's a lot that's unclear. But one thing that I've nailed down, one thing in all the reading and all the research, I've, one thing I know for sure, human beings without love and belonging suffer. That, she says, is an absolute certainty. And the absence of love always, according to Brene Brown, according to Vanderkolk, according to Genet, the absence of love always entails pain on a social, psychological, emotional level. And where love is missing, you guys, where love is missing from a human life, we try to fill that void with obsessions and addictions that simulate love, that fill the, the space with a pretense of love, a pretense of fulfillment. Love has to be simulated if it doesn't exist. And this is why we plunge ourselves into all kinds of different addictions. And in our culture, one of the things that we're witnessing that is completely understandable in the context now of what we're talking about this morning is the hypersexualization of our culture is symptomatic of the fact that we are starved for love. We are starved for love, and sex is substituted for love because sex makes us feel like we have the intimacy that we long for, even if we know it's a lie. Because the average person, if given an opportunity to choose, would, excuse the typo, rather be lied to than be alone. I mean, think of all the popular songs that essentially say, tell me lies, tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. Tell me you love me even if you don't. And I'll believe what you're telling me so that I can survive in this world. So the Bible is essentially a story of two different narratives to choose from. Now track with this. The Apostle Paul understood this 2,000 years ago. And he says that through one man, sin or relational violation entered the world. This one man, of course, is who? This is in the biblical story going all the way back to Genesis. This is who? This is Adam. Through one man, sin or relational breakdown entered the world. And then he says in chapter 5, verse 14, that Adam is a type of him who was to come. In Paul's thinking, there's Adam, and then there's one other person. Who's the one who was to come 
that Adam was a type of? Well, he's speaking, of course, of Jesus. The Bible is the story of just two human beings. You say, wait a minute, there's all kinds of human beings in the Bible. There's Daniel and Isaiah and David and there's Ruth and Sarah and yeah, there's all those people in the Bible and all the people in the world. And the point that Paul is making is that every single person is living out the implications of Adam's fall or the redemption that is in Christ Jesus of that fall. So there's just two stories to choose from. There aren't three, four, five, ten. There are not all kinds of options. There's just Adam and Christ. So Paul goes on and he reasons like this. Therefore, notice this language very carefully, therefore, as through one man's offense, one man's offense, judgment came to all men, to all human beings, resulting in condemnation, that is the psychological phenomenon of guilt and shame, he says, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in innocence, a sense of removal of the guilt, the shame, the breakage of the narrative. That is justification of life. So Paul's language, not my language, Paul's language is there's one man's offense, and then by contrast, there's one man's righteous act, singular. So in Paul's thinking, Jesus, Jesus is a single narrative act. Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension is an act. It is a single cohesive narrative that I can relate to, that I can latch onto, that I can integrate into my life. For as by one man's disobedience, notice the language, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. Notice the language again. According to Paul, there's just one man's disobedience. You say, oh, no, wait a minute. All of us have been disobedient. But our disobedience is in the wake of that one man's disobedience. What Adam did set into motion a train of history that produced all the dysfunction in the world, including yours, including mine. So there's one man's disobedience, which is to say one man's lack of love. And then there's one man's obedience to the law of love, and that is Jesus. And that, that one new man's obedience produces an entirely different kind of narrative. So essentially what Paul is teaching is this. Adam is a story. Adam from Genesis, the father of the human race. Adam is a story of sin, that is relational violation or a lack of love in relationships that produces guilt, the psychological phenomenon of shame and condemnation, which then produces disintegration in relationships. Husbands and wives, boyfriends and girlfriends, parents and children, nations against nations. I mean, Putin is simply living out the implications of Adam's fall. He himself, and it's difficult to sympathize with him, is a trauma victim of some sort who is turned so inward with narcissistic 
egocentric mania that all he can see is himself and his goals, regardless of the pain and suffering it causes the rest of the world around him. And the same is true on maybe a micro level for all of our lives. So Adam's story is sin, guilt, and disintegration. But Jesus, and this is incredible, Jesus is the story of a restored love leading to a restored sense of innocence in which the guilt is offloaded from the human conscience that leads to a restoration or reintegration of relationships. In other words, to the degree that I begin to receive God's love for me in Christ, I can begin to love you the way I was always meant to love. This is Paul's theology. This is, in fact, the gospel. So each of us, without exception, it doesn't matter who you are or whether or not any one of us has ever thought it through the way Paul is explaining it. Paul is explaining things with words that we experience on a relational and emotional level, whether we've ever articulated it or not. And, and all he's saying is that each of us are living out either the plot line of Adam or the plot line of Christ, without exception. Your life is a narrative of self-centered shame and guilt and trauma, or your life is a narrative of healing and innocence and reintegration with others at a mature level of love. One of those two things is happening right now in your life and mine. Adam was the beginning of a good story that went bad. This is Paul's thinking. This is Paul's theology. Adam was the beginning of a good story that simply went south. It went bad. Jesus, by contrast, rewrote Adam's story. And this is why Paul refers to him as the second Adam or the last Adam. Think of Jesus like this. Jesus isn't merely a, a historical figure 2,000 years ago, God in the flesh who died and rose again and ascended. Jesus is the representative of the whole human race. Jesus is the new man, singular and corporately. He is the eschatological man. He is the human being who now puts on display before us what it really looks like to be a true human. So when we look at Jesus, there's a sense in which we are looking at a prophetic mirror. You look at Jesus and you think, that's what I am supposed to be like. Jesus loves in a way that resembles my potential, whether I've realized it or not. I can be like him. I can experience the beauty of loving the way I was mentally, emotionally, and biologically designed to love. The whole thing can be put back together in a beautiful story in which my guilt and shame is offloaded and I have a sense of innocence before God so that now, out of that sense of innocence, I can begin to see you with a whole new perspective as a person 
who I can love and forgive when you have violated me rather than to dig in my heels and to hold a grudge and to carry the anger and the bitterness of the violations and the traumas that have been inflicted upon me. I can be free to move forward in life to build a completely new story. And so Paul, from that premise, that was Romans 5, he introduces the narrative of Jesus in the form of a ritual. He says in chapter 6, verse 3, he says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized, were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? This is very strange language. Okay, Jesus died. How does his death constitute my death? Paul is simply saying that when I'm baptized, when I go under the water and I come back up, I have engaged in kind of reenacting the narrative of Christ. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Do you see what's happening here? According to Paul, baptism is a mini-reenactment of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's me identifying with his story as my own new narrative. I look at Jesus, and I see him dying with self-sacrificing love for others rather than retaliating. I look at Jesus rising from the grave victorious over sin, and guilt, and ascending to the right hand of the Father to the victory position, and I look at him, I'm baptized, and when I'm baptized, I'm simply enacting that story and identifying with it. I'm saying, I'm done with Adam and his narrative of sin and guilt and disintegration. I'm identifying with Jesus and his love and innocence and relational integrity. So he says, for if we have been united together in the likeness of Jesus' death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing, Paul says, Paul's complex, but you got to track with him, knowing that our old man, singular, that is the, the old version of humanity that is corporately ours as a whole. So there's humanity, and there's humanity 2.0. There's the old operating system, and then there's the new operating system. Jesus is the new operating system that optimizes the human being so that you and I can flourish and grow and mature and flower into our true potential. So baptism is simply and profoundly the act of remembering who we really are in Christ. For Agatha Christie, it was just 11 days of forgetting who she was. For you and me, it's our whole lifetime until we encounter Jesus. And we look into his love and we say, ah, oh, that's who I'm supposed to be. I'm meant to be a man, a woman, a human being who loves like that. Jesus is my Savior, by which I mean 
Jesus is my new narrative. I'm going to live out the implications of his life, death, burial, and resurrection. The bottom line is simply this. Your life, my life, will only make coherent sense as a story that entails giving and receiving love. Apart from that pattern of existence, giving love, receiving love, first, on the vertical level, receiving God's love and loving God back, and then on the horizontal level, out of the, the beautiful abundance of my fulfillment in God's love on the horizontal level, to begin to love my wife, my husband, my son, my daughter, my nana, my papa, my friend, my colleagues at work, my fellow human beings, whoever they may be, my life now takes on the meaning that is in many form historically represented in the person of Christ. One man becomes the author of a new narrative that you and I have the privilege of identifying with. And so the great, the great forgetting gives way to, in Christ, the great remembering. I've forgotten who I am, but when I look at Jesus, now I remember. I was wandering around 320 kilometers from my car. And then he looked into my eyes, and I began to wake back up to the truth that I am not a trauma victim. I am a healed, restored, innocent creature of the divine image with the capacity, by God's grace, to love like Jesus loves. Thanks for your time.